Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. First of all, let me start by asking you a few questions or setting you some scenarios and see how you would respond. You're traveling for work, you're away on business alone, you're staying at a hotel. Over dinner, you end up chatting to an attractive stranger. After you've talked for a while, this person writes something on a piece of paper and slips it to you and says, this is my room number. I'll be there later if you want to come up. How do you respond? You visit a car showroom to see what your hard-earned cash can buy. The salesman shows you two cars. One is an environmentally uh, friendly car, but it is also very ugly. The other is a total gas guzzler, but it's really cool. What would you do? Your gay friend proudly tells you that he's getting married to his long-term boyfriend and asks you to read a blessing at the wedding. A teenage girl you know shares with tears about her surprise pregnancy. She is being advised to terminate. A friend gives you the password to a website so that you can download pirated movies and watch them for free. You need to buy some printer paper. There's a choice between budget paper that's about 99 pence for a ream and recycled paper that's approved by the Forest Stewardship Council. But it is five times the price. You're on a bus going through rush home and a man turns to you and makes a racist remark. Your neighbour runs a charity helping migrant women who are victims of domestic abuse. She tells you about it, and there's an obvious opportunity to give. You have £50 in your pocket. What will you do? Now, your answer to questions like these and countless other real-life situations that face us every day here in Manchester come out of your worldview. A worldview is your foundational beliefs about God, the world, Humanity and how you fit into that and how it all relates to you. That's your worldview. And we all have one. They're like the, uh, the great tectonic plates that cover the earth and underneath the landscape. And they shape it, but the worldview, like those plates, isn't usually on display. And movements in a person's worldview can feel like an earthquake. That's why it's very hard for Western adults to convert to Christianity. It feels like an earthquake. Or to use another picture, we're like great trees that have put down deep roots into something. Our behavior and our choices are actually rooted deep down in our foundational beliefs, our view of the world. Now, the worldview of Western civilization was profoundly shaped by the Bible, and it was rooted in the book of Genesis. Many things that Mancunians hold dear actually come from Christianity. Are you passionate about equality? Do you believe society should be generous to the poor, the migrant, the asylum seeker? Do you think racism is evil? Do you care about justice, social justice, access to justice? Do you believe in the value of all human life? Do you believe in the dignity of labor, that a fair day's work deserves a fair day's pay? Do you think that people should have access to education and that science, art, Culture are actually worthy pursuits. Are you committed to community? Do you love diversity? Do you want to see social inclusion? Manchester 
is a city that loves these things and has fought for them. But most people don't realize that the roots of those commitments go down deep in Christianity. The roots are in Genesis. These things didn't just come out of nowhere. They spring out of a distinctive view of God, the world, humanity, and ourselves, how it relates to us all. If you, if you trace back in history, the beginnings of the trade union movement, the founding of the charity sector, the development of orphanages and ragged schools and institutions of learning, the roots of modern science, democracy, the abolition of slavery, the concept of human rights. Where do they all come from? Genesis, the roots, the foundations. And that's where we're going this autumn. We want to get back to the roots, to the foundations, so that we can live lives that are rooted in God's reality, not just in the kind of reality that we dream up in our own heads. Going back down to the great tectonic plates that underpin a Christian worldview to the foundations of theology and of the great story of the Bible that begins before the beginning of time and ends in a glorious future with everything in between. And it all starts here in Genesis chapter 1, which Joshua just read. And this is kind of the prologue to the whole story. Now this text raises lots of questions in our minds about the relationship between the Bible and science. And those questions are important. But let me say this. If we spend all our time arguing about whether this is talking about literal 24-hour days, or the days mean a much longer period of time, or it's actually a literary artistic depiction of creation, if we spend our time arguing about how it happened, that would be like standing in the Sistine Chapel and arguing about how Michelangelo did it. I was there earlier this year, standing there looking at this incredible ceiling, distracted only by the smell of people's body odor, <laughs> and security guards saying, silence, this is a holy place. <laughs> Imagine standing under that chapel ceiling and debating how long it took and what kind of scaffolding Michelangelo might have used all the while failing to look up. Now those are legitimate questions, but let's look at the painting. Here's the creation of Adam, a very famous bit of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And by the way, I know there are lots and lots of questions that I can't answer in one sermon, and maybe can't answer at all. But if you'd like to talk more and ask any question you'd like, we're going to have a Q&A session straight after the service in room B2 down the corridor. So head out down that corridor where the children are. You'll see me sitting alone. Come and ask me a question. I'll be happy to see you. The great text of Genesis 1 is a celebration. It's a, a beautiful piece celebrating the mighty works of God, which we've already done in song. And I want to say here that we're going to learn about three primary things. We're going to learn about God. We're going to learn about the world. And we're going to learn about you. God, the world, and you. First of all, God. Now, in the ancient world... Everyone was religious, but everyone believed in many gods. Here, there is only one. In the beginning, God. And look at this God. He speaks, he reigns, he just is, and he loves. First of all, he speaks. God said, let there be light. Now, the Bible was unique in the ancient world because it taught that God created everything out of nothing, just by speaking. And he created it without any pre-existing materials 
to help him. Other creation accounts from the ancient world always involve the gods needing some help and finding some stuff lying around on the building site or fly-tipped in the alleyway and making something out of it. The Babylonians, for example, had a creation account called the Enuma Elish. You can read it for free on the internet if you're having trouble sleeping. Now, in the Enuma Elish, which nerds like me have read, it sets up an epic conflict between the gods. There's a mother goddess called Tiamat, and she is killed by Marduk, who subsequently takes her corpse and makes the world out of that material. And then there's a co-conspirator called Kingu, who is killed in order to provide the material for the first humans, who are made to be slaves for the gods, to work in the world and free the gods to chill out. Babylon is built by them as a city for the gods, who celebrate their great victory with feasting. Now, Genesis, in that kind of world, where all the neighbors believed that, Genesis was radical. It claimed that God just spoke, and everything that exists was created. Psalm 33 says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, he puts the deeps in storehouses, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So the first thing we learn about our God is that he is a speaking God, and that his word has creative power, has power to bring life out of nothing. He desires to communicate with you. He is there, and he is not silent. We are his creatures. We need to listen to his voice. He speaks to us in words, even now, words that he's given us through human authors in this book. He speaks. God also reigns. Second thing we see here is that God is all-powerful. Genesis portrays him as the mighty one, the sovereign king. Now, in the beginning, it says he created the heavens and the earth, and that's an expression that means everything that there is. Nothing that has been made was made without God. He doesn't need any help. There's no endless struggle between good and evil and light and darkness. He is supremely powerful. He is the unchallenged sovereign. This means that his plans and purposes always come to pass. He never fails. Now, it is said by people who study these things that there are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy and that there are at least 100 million galaxies in known space. Einstein apparently believed that we have scanned only one billionth of theoretical space with our largest telescopes. This means that there could be something like 10 octillion stars. 10 octillion is 10 followed by 27 zeros. A scientist at this church, who also happened to be playing the guitar and singing earlier on, reliably told me that the universe is still expanding. I don't know how he knows. <laughs> but he also told me that there's nothing on the other side of it. Okay, I read poems at university. Ten octillion stars. Genesis says he also made the stars. Five words. He reigns. That's who we're talking about. He speaks, he reigns, he just is. The third thing we realize is that God is eternal. Unlike everything else, God never had a beginning, and he never will have an ending. 
John Piper writes, the absoluteness of God's existence enthralls the mind. God's never beginning. God's never ending, never becoming, never improving, simply and absolutely there to be dealt with on his terms or not at all. Just set this sinking for a moment. God, the God who holds you in being at this very moment, he never had a beginning. He's always been there. He always was and always will be and will be to come. He defines all things. Whether we want him to be there or we want to pretend he's not there, he is there. We don't negotiate the shape of reality. God defines reality. When we come into existence, on the first day of our life, we are lying before a God who made us, gave us life, and owns us. We have absolutely no choice in the matter. We don't choose to be, but God is. He was there before we came. He will be there after we've gone. And therefore, what matters in our lives, above all things, is how we relate to this God. We can't escape the fact that God must be the main thing. Life has to do with God because everything in the universe has to do with God. Every atom, every soul belongs to God who absolutely is. He created heaven and earth. He sustains everything at every moment. He directs the course of all events because from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. He speaks. He reigns. He just is. But you know, supreme power and eternality, on their own, could lead us to be very afraid. They could lead us to terror. Because great power and eternality, on its own, is not the guarantee of a good God, is it? Could be a tyrant. So the fourth thing we learn, I think is probably the most important, and certainly the dearest thing, is that God loves. He loves. Now if you ask people, what was there in the beginning? You get some very interesting answers. I wonder what you would say. What was there in the beginning? Some say that there was nothing. There was just an endless ex dark expanse of empty space, which kind of is something, but anyway, let's call it nothing. There's just this endless dark nothingness. And then somehow there was a bang. And everything that we now know came about out of nothing. So in this story, our origins lie in absolute Zero. Everything comes from nothing. So what is life? What's your life? It's an attempt to make something out of nothing. Forget your origins, you come from nothing. Forge something, impose your own meaning. Be a self-creator. As George Bernard Shaw once said, you become a self-made man who worships his creator. A lot of people can't live with this. They observe that in the world, nothing comes from nothing. So another popular answer to the question, what was there in the beginning, is a lonely God. A lonely God. Many people have some vague concept of a God back there in the beginning. Not really sure much about him, but all you know is that he's solitary. He was a solitary God all on his own. But imagine this lonely God existing from all eternity, singing, Oh, by myself. Who sang that? With no one and nothing beside him. Just his own thoughts for company. He knows nothing of relationship. 
All he knows is absolute power and supremacy. Now imagine if that God created the heavens and the earth. Would you want to live there? This lonely God, he knows all about command and control, but nothing about companionship. He knows all about how to be supreme, but not about how to share. For the lonely God, love is not primary. Power is. And so for the world to line up with the lonely God, what would life be all about? Submission. But what about the Bible? It answers the question, what was there in the beginning? Not with nothing, nor with a lonely God. Because the Bible portrays a God who is one, but he is three persons at the same time. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This three-personed unity we call a trinity, a tri-unity. In other words, the Bible's answer to the question, what was there in the beginning, is the triune creator. Now you get just a hint of it here, right at the beginning of our chapter. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Okay, so there's God, and then there's the Spirit of God, right? And then if you look down to verse 26, towards the bottom of the second column, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. So there's God, there's the Spirit of God, there's us language, but we know there's only one God. What's going on here? Now this is just the dawn of creation. This is page one. When the sun is just starting to creep over the horizon. But there's another place in the Bible where the sun has risen and is shining in all its brilliance and we see things more clearly. There's another place where this phrase, in the beginning, occurs. Do you know where it is? It's the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John uses these very words. In the beginning, it says, was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now here John makes the grandest possible claims for someone called the word. Not only was he there with God right at the beginning, Genesis 1 verse 1, but he actually was God. So the language makes it clear that whatever God was, this word was, he's fully God. The great God, the maker of heaven and earth, John says that the word is divine. Full identification. But John is also very careful to distinguish that this word is distinct from God in some way. He doesn't want us to miss it. He says it twice. He was in the beginning with God. John is making things as plain as possible for us. And language is also breaking apart at the same time because he's trying to describe a reality that's beyond our categories. The word was fully God, yet he was distinct from God. He was with God and he is God. He made all things. Who is he? Jesus! John doesn't hold back the answer for too long. He says the word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Jesus! So this is ultimate reality. Before anything else existed, God the Father was loving his Son, who we know as Jesus, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. 
that same spirit who hovered over the waters of creation. And the three persons of the triune creator made everything that is. What does it mean? It means that for all eternity there was give and take. There was back and forth. There was relationship. There was closeness. There was companionship. There was sharing. There was interaction. Warmth. Intimacy. Friendship. In the beginning, there was love. A love supreme. This God that we're thinking about, he speaks. He reigns. He just is. And most especially of all, he loves. He loves. This triune creator then, here's the mind-blowing thing. In making creation, he's making room for someone else, for lots of other beings. He's making room, and then he's welcoming us into his family. Now, what this means is that the controlling reality behind it all is not fate. It's not fate, and it's not the force. Sorry to you Star Wars fans. It's not fate or the force, but fellowship. Fellowship, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit loving, the triune creator. Now, we've spent most of our time on God because he is the main character after all. We've learned about God, what Genesis, the roots go down here into Genesis, teaching us about God who speaks and reigns and just is and who loves. But, but Genesis also tells us about the world. Now remember, we're going back to our roots here, to, down to the tectonic plates, to the grounding. We thought about what Genesis teaches about God. What does it teach about the world? Three things from the passage. Firstly, the world is ordered. You probably noticed when Joshua was reading it, there's a real rhythm to this. God speaks, let there be something, 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 and there is, it happens. And then God sees that it is good. He separates things out. He creates order and space. And there's evening and morning the first day, and then there's a second day, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth. And God's finished his creation, and then he rests, an active enjoyment of what he's made. It's ordered. There's, there's pattern and sequence. Things are done in order. Habitats are created, and inhabitants are made that are going to inhabit them. Now, some scholars see the days of, of Genesis 1 as a kind of framework. They see that uh, in day one, two, and three, there's the creation of habitats. Day one, there's light and darkness. Two is water and sky. Three is land, sea, and vegetation. And then on the corresponding day, there's some inhabitants who are going to live there and rule those habitations. So light and darkness are ruled by the sun, moon, and stars. Water and sky are ruled by the water creatures and birds, day five. Land, sea, and vegetation are ruled by animals and most of all, preeminently, human beings who are made to image God and reflect him in the world. More about that next week. Day seven is completion. There's a framework there. It's not random. It's not governed by chance. It doesn't just sort of happen. There's an uninhabitable place, and then the creator separates out and makes realms and rulers. Now, this Bible vision of an ordered creation that operates predictably and works with cause and effect, and has laws of science, led to the development of modern science. Many of the pioneers of science were self-identified Christians. Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, Francis Bacon, Johannes Kepler, 
identified as Christians. They had confidence that their work was possible because the world was not random but had order, because God had made it. Kepler described his work as an astronomer as thinking God's thoughts after him. Science. Now, it's ordered, but it's also beautiful, isn't it? The world is beautiful. God could have created the world as a giant car park with a McDonald's at one end, but he didn't. Thankfully, he made trees, mountains, streams, oceans. He made lush tropical rainforest and arid plains and polar ice caps. He made wild horses, antelope, eagles, hummingbirds, clownfish, neon tetras, and hippos. He made noble beasts and quirky creatures. Cows and cats that could be domesticated and Tyrannosaurus rex that definitely could not. God made it all, and he declares it good. God is actually the first artist. This is why art is so valuable and beautiful. It's imitating the creator. He finishes his work, and he stands back day seven. He says, it's very good. It's very good. It's ordered and beautiful. It's not merely that. It is also abundant. It's abundant. This world and its contents are not random. We've already said that. Every detail actually is designed to provide a home. On the macro level, God has made a world that is suitable for life. The conditions are right for life to flourish. The right amount of water, the right amount of oxygen, the, the, the absolute right proximity to the sun, the Earth's atmosphere. On the micro level, God has made a world that is ideal for humans to flourish. Not only to live and eke out an existence, but to develop and flourish. All the resources are there in God's world. Iron ore and coal and copper, sand and limestone, potash, wood, soil and stone, oil, sugarcane, mangoes, oranges, soya beans, energy that could be harnessed, food that could be eaten, animal and plant life. It's all there waiting to be discovered for the first humans. So the first humans move into a furnished apartment. Everything's there for them to flourish, to develop, and to create culture. That is the world that God made, ordered, beautiful, and abundant. And there's no hint of defect in chapter 1. The Greeks believed that creation had two tiers. They believed there's a world of the ideal that was perfect, but it was non-physical. It was the world of ideals. And then there was the physical world, which was basically skanky and inferior. That's what the Greeks thought, but the Hebrews knew better. They knew that God had made the world and bodies, creation, and he called it very good. And that's why wine is good. Sex is good. Chocolate is good. God, the world, and finally, you. What does it mean for you on Monday morning? We're going back to the roots, to the foundations, to the grounding of our worldview here. This is the first week of maybe 10 or 12 sermons. Thinking about God, the world, and us. What's the cash value for you and me this week? I want to point out three things from Genesis that many more could be said. Firstly, there's a challenge. There's a challenge. It wasn't easy for the first readers to accept these words. And it isn't easy for you. Uh, the first readers 
were the Hebrew nation who'd just been set free from slavery in Egypt. They'd been living there for 400 years. They'd grown and multiplied. There were now a few hundred thousand of them. But they'd been slaves, and they'd been surrounded by the religion, the ideas of Egypt. Many gods, gods that resemble things in creation. The sun is a god, the moon is a god, bulls are gods, you get the picture. Now here they are. Here they've got this. Uh, there's now only one God and we don't have a statue of him. Now you've been raised in an environment where the public truth is that everything came from nothing. Most people believe that in our country. They believe that the universe is everything and so scientists are the new priests. If you watch TV at all, you'll find that vicars are always a joke but scientists are authoritative. Now, in this new public truth that we have, it's okay to believe in God as long as you keep it private. Keep God in the closet and don't bring him out, for goodness sake. Don't mention him at dinner parties and certainly don't suggest that your God has any claim on other people's lives. That's the public truth. But Genesis gives us a different picture, a challenge. Abraham Kuyper, who was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands and also a theologian, Christian, said these famous words, no single piece of our mental world is to be sealed off from the rest and there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our existence over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus owns it all because he made it all and he paid it all. There's a challenge to us there to live confidently in the light of this teaching, in the lives that God has given us and the time that he set us in. There's a challenge. There's also flourishing. We live in an environment that says, the public truth says, human flourishing comes through looking into your own heart, finding your own deepest desires and acting on them and not being bound by anything or anyone else. But Genesis says that human flourishing comes through living life with the maker. The, creator, the loving creator. The maker has the instructions for life, if I can put it like that. God has made us, and he knows what is best for our flourishing. That is a total claim on our lives. So God will, will set the compass for our existence. We'll only flourish if we, if we walk by his ways. Challenge, flourishing, but thirdly, and I want to finish here, worship. This is where we're going to end. Worship, we've already thought about this. The New Testament says that Jesus Christ was that word of God who made it all with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. They say that the distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. They say that if you reduce that distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, to a, to a single sheet of paper, then the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet tall. But the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's how big the galaxy is. And they say that the galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust in the whole universe. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ holds this universe together by the word of his power. So I'll finish with a question. 
Is that the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your assistant? There's a challenge to us. There's a promise of flourishing. And there's a place to worship. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.